The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, happy Tuesday, everybody. You're watching Squawkbox, Habina Gamedi, and myself, Steve Sedgwick, are your anchors for the next three hours. Lucky old you. Let's give you some headlines. Major U.S. indices hit record highs for a second day, with the Dow closing above 38,000 for the first time as investors prepare for a string of corporate earnings. Japan's Nikkei also hitting highs, the highest level since 1990 after the Bank of Japan maintains its ultra-loose monetary policy but slashes its full-year inflation outlook. The Bank of Japan governor, Kazuo Ueda, is due to speak at 7.30 Central European time. And we'll bring you those lines as they cross the wires. Israel proposes a two-month ceasefire in return for the release of more than 130 hostages, while Hamas demands a full Israeli withdrawal from the Strip. And Hong Kong stocks surge as Chinese authorities reportedly mull a trillion yuan rescue package to rescue confidence in the country's flagging stock market. It's all about the wages now. Everyone's eyeing up what the wages are going to look like in early 2024 from Japanese corporates. And that's pretty much why the Bank of Japan has maintained its ultra-loose monetary policy, continuing its streak as the only central bank in the world with negative rates. Isn't that extraordinary? Officials kept rates at minus 0.1% as they determined, as I mentioned, whether wage growth will be able to sustain the bank's 2% inflation target. The Bank of Japan cut its inflation outlook to 2.4% for the year, whilst edging up its core inflation outlook to 1.8% for 2025. Now, speaking to CNBC, the former BOJ deputy governor, Masazumi Wakatabi, said the central bank is contending with a splintered economy. Right now, we are facing the kind of two Japans, so one Japan is more like the inflation uh, friendly or the inflation welcoming Japan. The other one is a huge chunk of the Japanese economy still, uh, which is mired in a kind of deflationary mindset. You have pointed out sort of the differences in the, in terms of the farms uh, sizes, but uh, you can uh, point out that things for the sort of sector wise. So in that sense, you know that the the the, the central banks uh, the main function is to uh, stabilize the macroeconomy. But if you think about the sort of differences with the economy, inequality within the economy, that uh, the central bank has to be very careful. Well, after that decision, what has it meant then for the market? Well, we're in a mixed trading picture across the entire Asian market. Then we saw the Nikkei 225 following that decision actually reach new highs then dip off. You are seeing it now around a tenth of a percent down uh, in this trading picture. The Hang Seng out of Hong Kong moving three and a quarter of a percent higher than 
Of course, a lot of that still on the back of Chinese authorities mulling that trillion yuan, around $280 billion worth then uh, of uh, measures to try and stimulate uh, the stock market then. It's a, a big package that they're considering there are Chinese authorities as well. So the Shanghai Composite is pretty much uh, flat right now. Then tech stocks still leading that charge. As I said, the Nikkei hitting that 38,915 mark is the mark that we're pretty much looking out for then for that all-time high that was last reached in 1989. That's pretty much the next mark then on the table here. So Japanese markets did initially rise dipping off, though, around a tenth of a percent. On to the United States, then the bull run continues on Wall Street for a third positive session in a row for a lot of these majors. The Dow hit a new record and closed above 38,000 points for the first time ever, up a third of a percent. Then yesterday, that 138-point gain is in the midst of an earnings period then that we are looking towards. Netflix, rather, reports its numbers then later today. We will do a preview on those. Plus... Tesla, of course, becomes another one to look out for this week. We also had numbers coming out of United Airlines, actually. Then uh, their stock price rose more than 6% after reporting strong Q4 results. But their outlook, particularly on Q1, was very interesting because they said that they expect a Q1 loss, particularly after the grounding then of those Boeing 737 MAX 9 airplanes. Some of the other airline operators also saw gains of around 3 to 6, uh, 2 to 3 percent, should I say. Now, 10 percent of the S&P 500 companies have reported earnings thus far. It does seem like 65 percent of those are beating profit estimates by a median of around 6 percent. All of these, however, on the up, even the Nasdaq managing to gain 15, 000, to 15,360, a third of a percent there, uh, to the good then. Of course, the likes of NVIDIA still on a tear, up more than 20 percent this year so far. Onto the Treasuries market then. This has been arising over the past few days, but yesterday, fortunately, did come off then. But the 10-year Treasury yield dipping four basis points then, now sitting at 4.0956, following yesterday's dip-off, another dip-off then early in today. Uh, the two-year Treasury note sitting at 4305 on to the dollar crosses then. Uh, U.S. currency is seeking direction ahead of this week's ECB uh, meeting then. Of course, that's anticipated out on Thursday. Of course, the move uh, to the yen will be interesting following the Bank of Japan having kept its ultra-loose monetary policy stance then. We're now still at that 148 mark, which has been uh, the mark that it has petered around for uh, the last month or so. Uh, 127.37 though for the sterling. Uh, the euro is 109 then to the dollar some weakness, though, for the dollar thus far. It has, of course, been very interesting because the dollar index is up 1.8% from the start of the year. Steve. Thank you very much indeed. Let's get to Ian Cunningham, head of multi-asset growth at 91. Ian, really nice to see you. If we may, can we start off on Japan? Because if we're looking for reasons why the Japanese uh, stock market is moving so high, perhaps we look to monetary policy and we see that they are stalwartly refusing to move at the moment, uh, unconvinced at the moment that inflation will lead to wage increases, and which is where, uh, of course, Japanese policymakers have great concern. So given all of that, is it a green light to buy Japanese equities still at the highest level since 1990, or should one hold off now? Good morning, sir. Hi there. Good morning, Steve. Um, I think there's, a, there's probably a few things to consider here because, I mean, ultimately, 
as you say, the Japanese equity market's benefited from a couple of things. There's been obviously material negative real rates, as we've seen sort of inflation and nominal growth rise in Japan. We've seen uh, an exceptionally weak yen over the last couple of years. And obviously, we've seen increasing um, action from the Tokyo Stock Exchange to, to enact uh, reform uh, to sort of unleash value from the, the, the Japanese market. So there's been there's been quite big tailwinds so far. I think one thing that's worth worth bearing in mind and, and considering is, is ultimately when we think about the the, the yen it's very it's very influential on the Japanese market, uh, particularly for the the export uh, led sectors. And I think if we think about what drives the yen, um, it's actually predominantly driven by global forces. And I think when we look forward uh, over the next twelve to eighteen months, we see a prospect of of easing cycles uh, in the developed world, and and that could well put upward pressure on the yen and create more of a headwind for the for the Japanese equity market. I hear you, Ian, and it was a trade that was quite popular at one stage last year um, with the dollar coming off fairly aggressively on that dollar-yen pair at one point as well. And we've got a very good chart at the moment uh, showing you know, we, were, we were pottering around 140 on the pair. But at the moment, we're back up to near the highs, 148 as well. Yes, we're waiting for an easing cycle out of the US and others as well. But, uh, but as we saw in Davos last week, it may not happen as quickly as some hope it would happen in both the equity and bond markets as well. Does that mean actually that for the moment that Japanese equity holding, it, it, it's still OK to do that as the yen remains under pressure? Yeah, I think it's, it's it's interesting with regard to central banks because because I guess central banks have obviously been fighting inflation. They sort of a lot of them threw uh, models uh, out of the window over the last couple of years, and and sort of some major central banks remain sort of resolutely backward looking. The policy policy should be currently in in its place. I think the Fed is 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 likely to ease to maintain uh, a certain level of real rate i.e. they don't want to see real rates rising uh, while inflation continues to moderate. I think when we look at the ECB, uh, we think the ECB is in the wrong place now with regard to policy. So we have basically real growth is about zero in, in Europe. And when we look at shorter term annualized inflation numbers, uh, they on a three year sort of annualized, sorry, three month annualized basis, we see them sort of sat at about 1%. So you've got sort of 1% nominal growth uh, right now in the eurozone, we think that's going to decelerate further, and you've got four percent deposit rates. So, we we would say that that at some point in the next six months, uh, there's a good chance the ECB may change their their view relatively quickly. Yeah, and, and when they do, it could mean fairly swift uh, declines in the rate of interest. Um, can I just I'll just pivot, if I may? Sorry, back to Japan, and just have a, a bit of compare and contrast with the Japanese stock market versus the Chinese stock market. There are reports, and I'm reading a Bloomberg report talking about a stock market rescue package backed by $278 billion as well. Um, I, I think that's extraordinary. I, I wouldn't worry about the stock market. I'd worry about more about the underlying economy if I was the Chinese policymakers. But thankfully, I'm not a policymaker. What do you make of the disparity between China and the Japanese economy or China and the Japanese stock market at the moment, Ian? I just wonder if you had any views. Yeah, I think it's it's, it's obviously pretty stark. I mean, with regard to the, the degrees of sentiment. So you obviously got... I guess when we look at uh, headlines, there's there's an increasing degree of, I guess, um, money flowing into Japan, uh, potentially sort of uh, chasing the returns that have been been delivered. And I think when we look at China, uh, sentiment is, I think this is as bad as I've seen it um, in, in some 20 years or so. Um, and when, we, when you look at what policymakers are actually doing under the surface, I think the, the measures are getting gradually somewhat more extraordinary in terms of the policies they're beginning to introduce. So obviously, we've seen 
things like uh, pledge supplementary lending. We've seen additional liquidity being placed by the by the PBOC onto to major bank balance sheets. And then we're seeing things like local authorities and cities actually beginning to, to buy up um, sort of, uh, I guess, excess real estate and, and convert it into social housing. So there's there's definitely more extraordinary measures that are starting to come on, uh, underneath the surface within the real economy, uh, but it's being driven by exceptionally negative sentiment at the moment. And I think we go as far as saying that, that sentiment is potentially a little bit detached from from reality at the at the moment and and typically historically when you look at these sorts of periods actually these sorts of periods present a pretty pretty good opportunities to find uh, very good assets at effectively on sale sale prices uh, at these times uh, Ian, I was actually going to initially move to the US very quickly but I want to just get your thoughts on what you think uh, or, you know what hints you would like then from Governor Ueda to kind of give a clear sense of where policy tightening might be heading, when it might be happening, etc. Um, what hints would you be looking out for? Yeah, I think the, 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 the Bank of Japan, I think it's fair to say they've, they've moved a little bit slower than we had expected, given the, the various elements of, of domestic inflation that have been picking up over the past year. Uh, I think they've been quite clear in saying that they're, they, they're, they're cautious and they want to see a link between wages feeding through into sort of sustainable inflation dynamics before they, they do anything uh, notable. And so obviously over the next quarter or so, we'll see the, the, the wage rounds that are coming, coming through. And I think that's effectively what they're, they're waiting for. They, they are making statements like they don't want to miss the opportunity to hike. They're also focused on sort of structural changes in the Japanese economy where uh, you're seeing a lot of the population now sort of pushing into to, to later life in terms of notably aging and they're worried that that's going to reduce labor supply so there's definitely elements that they they want to move but i think they they they're going to remain cautious and want to see evidence that that, that wage growth is is relatively definitively feeding through to um uh placing up the pressure on prices domestically yeah very interesting one um Ian, are you are you surprised at all with the with the tear that we're seeing in the U.S. markets this year, especially considering how it has been based a lot then uh, on those tech plays, which went up quite significantly last year. Yeah, I think when we think about the U.S., it's um, we're we're sort of at, uh, approaching a juncture where. Um, Obviously, there is a risk that policy is very tight, that we see a, a slowdown emerge within within the, the economy. Um, there is also a chance as we move forward that we, we ultimately see uh, the Federal Reserve beginning to ease policy as inflation continues to cool. And if that can happen while the economy remains relatively robust, as it is at the moment, um, then ultimately there will be more liquidity coming into the system. And there is a is a, a probability or a, a decent probability if that happens that, that we will see more liquidity uh, moving into these these names, particularly uh, focused on tech and, and AI related trends, which are obviously um, uh, have strong structural characteristics, but then obviously particularly in the semiconductor space, we're seeing a sort of a troughing in the semiconductor cycle over the last couple of quarters as well yeah how, how how bad does the economic data then have to be uh as well to perhaps change your strategy for this year whether it is uh, peeling off a little bit from those tech plays and going into the more unloved stocks and equities or even some other areas how bad would you have to look at that economic data yeah, I think it's on a, on a, I mean, ultimately on a, on a broad basis, if we see a, a notable deterioration in, say, the labor market beginning to come through, because, I mean, naturally all these things tend to happen gradually and then, then sort of suddenly. 
Um, that's sort of the nature of the way economies uh, evolve. Um, if that starts to happen over the coming quarters, while the Fed remain uh, with policy at, at these levels, then there is there's certainly a chance we see some some more noted volatility within markets. But if we see the alternate, where basically things remain relatively okay within the economy and the Fed start to, to ease policy, uh, then then that dynamic will naturally be more supportive for for risk assets, particularly in the in the US. Yeah, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for getting up early for us, Ian. Um, I'm sure you get up early anyway. Uh, Ian Cunningham, uh, head of multi-asset growth at 91. What time do you get up? 3 a.m. Do you? Yeah. Why? Why? Well, you live in London. Yeah, what's the what's your point? I still have to pamper myself. You know, this face doesn't... Pamper yourself? Yeah, this face oh, this doesn't is sort itself out. How do you pamper yourself? So I have, I have to do a whole skin... Do you have a routine? Re- I do have a routine. Man, seriously. <laughs> What kind of millennial are you? You're such a millennial. Do you think that this beard glistens on its own? No, I guess it doesn't. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. I, I, I live in the middle of nowhere and I get up at three. No, I, I do too. I mean, you I also get... hours pampering in the morning. I also get you before you, though, too. I have to do a lot more reading. <laughs> do you do an hour's pampering in the morning? About 45 minutes, yes. Good. Well, look, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. That is the breaking news. Uh, the BOJ governor, Kazuo Ueda, is due to speak at 7.30 Central European time and will bring you any interesting lines as they cross the wires. And for more on the challenges facing the Bank of Japan, check out cnbc.com. Arabile. All right, then let's uh, recap just some of the earnings then to have uh, come out as well from uh, uh, early this morning. Then it has been Ericsson that has come out with their numbers. Then sales dropping off uh, 16 to 17 percent then, uh, which has been fairly interesting to to look at. Just really looking at these numbers uh, thus far. Of course, the question marks have also been in and around the India uh, play as well. Plus, they've gotten that contract then uh, from AT&T, which... The anticipation is for that to have grown the business significantly. Sales declining organically by 17% year on year. A lot of that driven by a 23% decline in networks. Uh, Gross income excluding restructuring charges decreased uh, to uh, uh, essentially 29.6 Swedish krona. Um, Reported gross income also uh, 28.6 with a gross margin then of 39.8. Eight. This is just fourth quarter uh, numbers then uh, to, to look at. On a full year basis, sales declined organically by 10%. That was impacted by a 15% decline or decrease in networks, also partly offset by an 11% growth then uh, in enterprise. Uh, full year EBITDA excluding restructuring charges, which of course is a process that they're continuing to undergo. 21.4 Swedish krona gross mar- or margin there of 8.1%. And a dividend for 2023 then of 2.7 Swedish krona per share proposed at the AGM. We'll continue to uh, do a little bit uh, of a deeper dive on these numbers and actually speak as well uh, to uh, the CEO, Borgia Ekholm, that's coming up then a little bit later. So let's give you a deep tease on what is coming up. Uh, We'll have the latest then from the Middle East as Israel proposes a two-month pause in fighting. Plus, we'll look ahead to Netflix's results. That's due uh, after the bell then today with subscriber figures said to be closely watched by investors and as i said we'll have plenty more on ericsson's results with the ceo borgia ekholm uh, who joins us then later this hour in a first on cnbc interview
Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. Welcome back. Israel has proposed a two-month pause in fighting in Gaza in return for the release of all its hostages held by Hamas. Uh, That's according to the Israeli government sources talking to NBC. The proposal comes just hours after Israel rejected a Hamas deal to end the war in exchange for a full Israeli withdrawal from Gaza, as well as the release of Palestinian prisoners, including some who carried out the October 7th attacks. Uh, EU foreign ministers were joined in Brussels by the Israeli and Palestinian foreign ministers Monday. The EU's Josep Borrell has said the group pushed for the creation of a Palestinian state. The Israeli minister presented his plans for artificial islands off the coast of Gaza and his plan for a rail connection with India. Apparently he had already thought about these some seven years ago, so this didn't have much to do with what we were discussing. But member states made it clear that they understand that the solution for sustainable lasting peace that ensures security not only by military means, but by living side by side with its neighbours, would involve the setting up of a Palestinian state. The Israeli state already exists, we don't need to create it. We weren't able to get him to change his mind, but we weren't expecting that. Right. Uh, Dan joins us with plenty more on this. Well, Dan, the one positive I can take away from the impasse at the moment is that the two sides are at the table. There are diplomatic efforts going back and forth, which is very different, of course, uh, from the crisis in Ukraine, where the Russians and Ukrainians are just not speaking the same language at the moment. Uh, Good to see you, sir. Good to see you as well, Steve. I think fair point, but also look at what the Israelis are bringing to the table, Steve. You heard there the Europeans explain that the Israeli foreign minister arrived at this meeting with no plans for a ceasefire, no plans for the release of hostages, certainly no plans for a two-state solution. Instead, he walked into that meeting, rolled up under his arm with a plan to create an artificial island off the coast of Gaza. This is something that he has floated for the last five years. It's so off-piste. It so doesn't meet the moment. It is something that's been widely ridiculed, as you've heard right there from senior European officials, and certainly something that is unlikely to ever fly. So you have to remember, while they are meeting at the table, the Israelis aren't necessarily coming to the party at this point. Now, what we've learned in the last few hours is that Israel has now put forward this new proposal for a two-month pause in fighting for the release of all 130 remaining hostages. This plan was first reported by Axios. It's now been backed up by NBC News. The deal has been negotiated through Qatari and Egyptian moderators, which would basically represent the longest ceasefire that Israel has offered since the start of the war. And it's reported that this deal in its current form would include the release of all remaining hostages who are alive in several phases. It's understood the first phase would be women, men over the age of 60, and then hostages who are in a critical medical condition. 
Critically, though, uh, Israel says this is not an agreement to end the war, nor is it an agreement to release all Palestinian prisoners. But they say they are, quote, cautiously optimistic about the ability to make progress on this proposal in the coming days. The thing is, though, uh, Hamas is, of course, unlikely to agree to a pause in fighting. Hamas has demanded a permanent halt in fighting, a complete withdrawal of Israeli forces from Gaza and the release of a large number of Palestinian prisoners. That seems to be a red line on the Hamas side. And we've also heard from the Palestinian foreign minister who said ahead of this meeting that the only way this can happen is if we see a ceasefire on the ground. Listen in to part of what he had to say. The most important uh, uh, action to be undertaken is uh, a ceasefire. We have to call collectively for a ceasefire. We cannot accept anything less. We cannot uh, be hesitant about a ceasefire. Every day that we, are, we show hesitancy, people are being killed. Innocent people are being killed, children and, and, and women and elderly. And this is intolerable and unacceptable. The life of Palestinians really matter. And we cannot accept that, you know, uh, the life of Palestinian children uh, are being really treated uh, less than the life of uh, children anywhere in the world. The Palestinian Authority foreign minister there speaking at that meeting of EU leaders. And of course, one also wonders if this is Netanyahu perhaps uh, attempting to show that he is doing something to secure the release of those hostages, just given the intense pressure that he is now under at home in order to bring about some kind of effective resolution here. With that, it's back over to you. Great work, Dan. And uh, if I may say, great work in Davos as well. It's a pleasure working with you and your brilliant team. Uh, let us move on. Uh, the UK and the United States have launched a fresh round of strikes on Houthi targets in Yemen as they seek to secure safe passage for shipping through the Red Sea. The two said they hit eight sites, including an underground storage facility and positions used for missiles and air surveillance. It's the eighth round of US strikes since January 11, and the second time the United Kingdom has been directly involved. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.